Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, Jacob has a story for us about grass in Nevada and how changing landscapes amid a changing climate could have an impact on temperatures in Southern Nevada. After that, Joey and I are joined by CEO John Ralston and reporter Sean Galanka to chat about campaign finance. And before you shut off this episode, we are going to try and convince you why it's interesting and important. At the end of the show, we have a few more highlights from our IndieFest 2022 conference, with snippets from our education panel and book panel. Alrighty, well, so to start off, we have a, a piece of J- Jacob. You interviewed a scientist with the Desert Research Institute, um, and this is kind of part of our series on science around Nevada um, that's happening. Yeah, that's right. So I guess just to get into it, you know, this study is looking at microclimate and grass. And so why are we talking about this? For anyone who follows politics, you may have remembered in the last legislative session, the legislature backed a bill that basically said everyone has to get rid of quote-unquote non-functional turf. Uh, This is based on a recommendation from the Southern Nevada Water Authority that essentially excess grass is taking up way too much water and Lake Mead being what it is, Colorado River water being in sort of dangerously low conditions, we need to take all these steps to remove sort of unnecessary water use. What this study shows is that there are sort of unintentional or maybe unintended climate consequences of removing this kind of turf. So, Jacob, there's actually three different kinds of landscaping that we're going to be talking about here, right? Yeah, that's right. So for the purpose of this study, we're going to have to learn some big science words. And so we'll make it real easy right here. The first kind is mesic landscaping. Uh, So you can think of this as sort of traditional like parks and stuff, trees, turf, grass, water intensive plants, the works. Uh, The second kind is called xeric with an X. Um, This is desert landscaping. You know, if you, (laughs) this is pretty common in Southern Nevada, lots of rocks, low water plants, cacti, aloe vera, that kind of thing. The third kind is oasis landscape, and it's just a mix, right? Like you you can think of there is some turf, there's some high water use plants, but there's also, uh, you know, desert plants, rocks. It's it's not fully lush and green, think of it that way. Cool, so now let's jump into your discussion with DRI scientist Rubab Sahar, who's been studying this. All right, in Nevada, obviously, with the drought and with heat waves, climate change, all of this stuff, right, there's been a big political push to implement landscaping solutions, right? Grass takes up water. We don't want to use the water on grass. So there's been legislative efforts to get rid of the grass. But there's a monkey's paw element to this that you can't just get rid of the grass without unintended consequences. And so the heart of this research, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is this unintended consequence of creating urban heat. So can you explain a little bit about why that might happen when we remove grass? Our curiosity, our motivation started from how do they respond in different temperature and then different, you know, irrigation water use. And our key findings are that temperature-wise, mesic and oasis kind of have a comparable daytime cooling. So they essentially reduce the temperature in a similar way or the similar degrees. But in the nighttime, oasis landscape temperature actually heats up 
So the mesic landscape is a water guzzler, but the xeric landscape is kind of like an electric car. You don't really use a lot of water. And then oasis is kind of an, a hybrid car where you have both high water use and low water use landscapes. And then that kind of creates a daytime cooling, but at the same time, it heats up a lot at night. One thing I'm curious about then is the heat element of this. One of the reasons why you might have a regular, the, the mesic, the grass landscaping is because there's a heat element. I know I live right next to a park and it might be five to 10 degrees cooler than if I were to go down to a busy you know, intersection or what have you. And that multiplies out and there's you know equity questions and all kinds of questions that are drawn by this. But really importantly is that if we're trying to preserve those heat impacts, that the oasis landscaping sort of preserves as much daytime cooling as we're going to get rather than the xeric, the desert landscaping does. Essentially, the the way our landscape kind of contribute to heating or cooling is by evaporation. And evaporation depends on how much water you actually give to a landscape. Jacob, jumping back in from the future here. Just quickly to explain a little bit of the temperature impacts that are happening between these landscaping types. So with mesic landscaping, what we're seeing is actually a temperature impact, that it's the quote-unquote most comfortable. It lowers the temperature, mostly because of evaporation. With xeric, similarly, because we're not using sprinklers, but we're using stuff like drips to water plants that are low water use, we don't see that same kind of temperature impact because there's simply not the same level of evaporation. Therefore, OASIS, this study found, has a sort of middling impact. Less water use, but better temperature impacts. So what are the kind of complicating factors you found in doing this research? So irrigation in the long run has been very well studied. You know, there are people who are working on remote sensing approaches or like looking at satellites and kind of observing it, improving it in using classical physics, different models to use it. But when it's connected to an adjective that is urban, it throws in so much complexity. You have these discontinuous surfaces, you know, they have different heat kind of footprint and that kind of affects the plant. You have different type of shades. You have an artificial shade, you have a radiative shade, which essentially comes from trees. You have people kind of irrigating differently, but depending on the amount of awareness they have, depending on their preferences. So there is just so much complexity out there that your model, it, it's just bound to be dependent on those factors. How much information do we have about how landscaping might affect stuff like urban temperature and water usage? It's getting enough traction. I think the first review paper was in 2015 that actively talking about urban irrigation and how it's you know not there and the complexities related to it. And then there are a lot of other researchers kind of actively working towards it, but it still is in its infancy, urban irrigation model. And there needs to be one better data. By better, I mean high resolution data to kind of capture the microclimate effects, which is the shade and, you know, all these dis discontinuous surfaces and all of that. And then I think that the science needs to be kind of improved too when it comes to incorporating all these complexities. So from the satellite data, you're able to pull temperature and, and vegetation and sort of all of the data you need to compile what you need for your model? 
Yes, I think active NASA missions are doing a great job to kind of provide that data and it's a public information so everyone can just go in and get that data for the research. And there are a lot of active studies going on to improve the evapotranspiration, which goes to the irrigation modeling. So one of the main takeaways from my conversation with Rabab is that this study is not the end-all be-all and that actually urban irrigation, especially in comparison to agrarian areas, is relatively understudied. But because of that, you know, as we learn more about these processes, uh, we're really learning more about the relationship between watering, plants, and temperature. And all of that's going to become more important as all of us deal with the effects of climate change, especially in southern Nevada, the effects of drought. Well, now from physical landscapes of Nevada to the political landscape, we are talking about money and a conversation that Jacob and I had with our colleague Sean Galanka and CEO John Ralston. Uh, The reason I wanted to do this segment is that we do a lot of reporting on campaign finance, meaning the money that pours into political campaigns, But I think that unless you're really plugged into politics, you may not really pay close attention to those numbers. But there are reporting periods, and one of them is October 15th. So uh, here, let's jump into that conversation now. Okay, well, I am here with editor, I guess you're not editor-in-chief anymore, CEO John Ralston. I'm here with reporter Sean Galanka, and I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Jacob Solis. Hello, guys. Welcome. Hi, Joey. Hi, Joey. How you doing, Joey? Long time no see. Long yes, that's right, Jacob. Um, well, we're doing a, a segment today on on campaign finance, and I think when people hear the word campaign finance or the words campaign finance, they glaze over a little bit. You know, I think that it's it's a little bit technical sometimes. And I wanted you guys to come on. You guys have all done a ton of reporting on this in the past. To start off, I wanted you guys to explain, and in, in whatever order you want to take these questions in, what is campaign finance? Why do we talk about it? Why do we report on it? Why does it matter? So too many people, Joey, don't really care about it. They don't want to hear about numbers. They think that campaign financing is tantamount to bribery or whatever Whatever they think. I think it is very illuminating where the money is coming from, how much money is being spent on these various races. And I think we need to try to get people interested in this by showing people that there's a ton of money being spent in Nevada this time, more than maybe ever will be spent in history by a a huge factor because we have this high profile governor's race, Senate race, and three competitive or theoretically competitive congressional races. So who, where is this money coming from? It says something about the candidates, who they are taking money from, who is supporting them, and why they're supporting them. Yeah, and, and I, thinking about really the basics of campaign finance, basically you have candidates running for office who take contributions from people or, or groups then you might hear the term super PAC, where they can basically take in as as much money as possible from billionaire donors. You might hear like Steve Wynn gave $10 million, a PAC that has been spending big in the Senate races. And so that's a super PAC that's taking in a lot of money from a rich donor and then using it to buy airspace, spend money on ads in certain races. And so you see spending that's coming from both candidates and outside groups that are typically conservative or a, a Democrat-aligned group that's spending money to boost a specific candidate's campaign. 
mm-hmm. on the back end of this. Rather, you know, when we look at how the money is being spent, we live in an era where people probably have less access to major political candidates than ever. You know, these in the Senate race and the governor's race, these candidates are not holding major rallies. Events might only have a couple dozen people at them. And so their exposure to these candidates is going to be through campaign spending, right? You'd be lucky if you get past a one commercial break on local TV without seeing anything but political ads. And so where does that money come from? Where does it go? How is it being spent? Because it's shaping these races. There's no doubt about it. And we're going to talk a little bit more about where this money is coming from and how it's being spent. But I, you guys brought up something uh, that I wanted to touch on, which is PACs or political action committees. What is their role in fundraising? Really, when you're talking about the big money being spent in races, that's coming from super PACs. And so they're, they're technically supposed to be operating independently of candidates, at least when it comes to expending money. You, you'll see super PACs that are aligned with a candidate or aligned with a certain group, but then can basically disperse that money as it sees fit. A lot of this comes down to the fact that if you're a very rich donor, you're limited how much you can actually give a federal candidate for office. It's $5,600 per election per, per cycle. And so that's you can do that twice for the primary and the general. And that's it for an individual to give to one candidate. Sometimes you can get a little wily if you and your spouse also donate, so you can double that amount, but that's not a lot of money in the grand scope of campaigns that are raising millions of dollars. So if you're a rich person who wants to give money, how do you do it? Unlimited donations to PACs, and then the PACs spend that money. Well, and and that's true, right? Like when I see ads on the TV, especially like I think attack ads, I tend to notice with attack ads more than positive ads for a candidate are usually from a political action committee, a PAC, and they're not necessarily like Joe Lombardo or Steve Sislak aren't endorsing this ad. It's not coming from their campaign directly. It's someone else outside of their campaign that's making this attack ad that, you know, they may not even have a say over, right? Well, that's exactly right. Although this so-called technicality, as I think Sean called it, of them being independent and they're not supposed to coordinate is more of a technicality than anything else. Let me just use this as an example. Joe Lombardo's campaign is is fond of calling uh, Steve Sisolak North Shore Steve after this COVID testing company that that became the subject of the ProPublica article that we co-published. It's no coincidence that North Shore Steve is also being used in in some of these pack ads as well. And so there is coordination, even though there's not supposed to be coordination. I think back in the day, like you were just seeing TV and radio ads, but YouTube and, and you know, being online is where you're seeing a lot of these. You know, I can't scroll on Twitter anymore without seeing a, a political ad or, or on Instagram or something. So do you think that ads carry as much weight in this digital age where people can find information a lot easier than they could in the past? I think digital advertising has become much more important and effective uh, than ever before. There are a lot of people, especially younger voters, who consume these ads through YouTube or, or TikTok or Instagram. And so the campaigns that are more educated on this stuff for you young people on, on this podcast with me is the campaign that's likely to be more successful in targeting their audience. And I think to John's point, this is this gets at, I think, why campaign finance really matters, especially in this digital age where you can have you can see ads across social media, across streaming platforms, is that, you know, it's really about power on the airwaves. And so if you're constantly getting this messaging that 
oh, you know, Adam Laxalt is awful, then, you know, maybe if you're a swing voter, then that's that's enough to kind of influence your perception of a certain candidate. That money that we're, we're tracking so closely translates into advertising that people are kind of inundated with in this day and age. And so, you know, really just controlling the messaging around campaigns as we barrel toward the election. Yeah. And I think it's also important to contextualize what we're talking about when we're talking about the money and that the candidates don't have the same amount of money all the time. Cortez Masto, for instance, has outraised Adam Laxalt something like four to one since the beginning of the race. She has millions and millions of dollars in the bank. And Adam Laxalt is not cash poor, but he has to rely on PAC spending and outside spending in order to make up that difference. Now, that money has poured into the state and made up the difference, more or less. But that difference is there. And that's something that both campaigns have to deal around. Well, and, and, and yeah, that that's something that I wanted to bring up next, which is just, you know, when we're paying attention to the amount of money coming into campaigns, you know, what does that tell you about a campaign? If someone's way out raising someone or want someone's way out spending somebody? I think that tells me that you're probably going to see more advertising from that campaign. And so really that translates into, I guess, what we're seeing on the airwaves and and even in terms of political advertising that you might see in person through campaign signs, text messaging. There's a lot of ways that campaigns can spend that money beyond just TV and digital ads. When we look at how candidates are raising money and who that money's coming from, I think Democrats in particular, but Republicans to a, a certain extent more recently, are getting a lot of small dollar fundraising from just regular old people. And I think that we can really see that trend emerge post-2016. Bernie Sanders, I think, has a lot to do with this, that, you know, people can give 20 bucks or whatever through a platform like Act Blue or WinRed online. It's easy, simple, and now they've got their contact info and they're going to get bombarded with fundraising emails all the time. So they're going to give more later on to more candidates, not just where they live all around the country. And so we've seen, for instance, in the Senate, Cortez Masto has raised enormous amounts of money from Nevada, but bigger amounts of money from California and Texas and Florida and New York. Like uh, there are dozens and dozens, hundreds, thousands of donors in all of these places that are ready to open up their wallets any given day. And they're pouring money into all of these races and, and not just in Nevada, all over the country. When a candidate has the money, they have to disclose this, right? How how does that how does that work? So generally, candidates operate under a a quarterly reporting cycle. So basically, January fifteenth, April fifteenth, July fifteenth, October fifteenth. You go through the cycle where basically after three months, you have to report your fundraising and your spending activities within that span of time. And there are some different rules for PACs. For example, if they do an independent expenditure where maybe they spend a million dollars on a on a TV advertising, digital advertising buy, they have to report that expenditure. And so I, I also have a question for you guys, which is, do campaigns spend all of their money? If they lose, what happens to any leftover money that they have? Or if they win, what happens to any leftover money that they have? How does that money, what happens to it after the, the campaign is over? There are state and federal laws that govern that and, and whether you can roll over the money, how long you can you can hold on on, on to the money. And so th there have been candidates who have not spent all their money in significant amounts and then they leave it on the table and then and they lose and people say, what the heck what were you thinking? There have been some pretty noteworthy cases. The voters have to decide themselves who is giving and how much money candidates are, are raising. Does it say something about the candidate? who they're willing to take money from and how much money they're 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 raising that's up to the voters to decide but they should they should know about that information yeah there's just no denying that money influences elections and and we're here to provide you information about where that money's coming from where it's going and what kind of messaging is coming from these campaigns and these political action committees because of that money
Yeah, I think, frankly, we live in a world that is post-Citizens United, and the reality of that is that campaign money is the campaign, and, and we have to be able to pay attention to that and, and understand why that matters. And uh, we'll get into Citizens United maybe another time. That's a, that's a whole other topic, but it is an important one for campaign finance nonetheless. But John, Jacob, Jingleheimer Schmidt, and Sean, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. I appreciate you guys. Alrighty, well, to wrap up the show this week, we have a few more highlights from our big yearly conference, IndieFest 2022. That's right. And to start, I'm going to highlight a short snippet from a panel that I was moderating alongside our editor, Elizabeth Thompson, about K-12 and higher education and the pathways from one to the other. In this clip, you're going to hear from a CCSD teacher, Ben Wynn. The uh, pandemic certainly made a lot of challenges coming out, uh, thinking about postgraduate opportunities for students. Uh, many of my students, I teach in high school at Sunrise Mountain High School in the CT department. Whether it was the workforce or for post-secondary uh, opportunities like college or maybe part-time schooling, for many of my students, if they can't visualize the path and they cannot, for me at least as their teacher, narrate it to me, here's what I'm going to do after high school, it's very difficult for them, for many of them, as they go through that, especially that first year of college or first, if they're going to UNR, few of my students, uh, to to wrestle with the challenges that they're going to face, whether it be the challenging courses that they're going to take. Uh, myself, I teach automation technology, which uh, next year our state's renaming to advanced manufacturing. Uh, there's been a lot of activity in this area of skilled labor, skilled uh, uh, trades that I think Nevada certainly as a state can perhaps take the lead on. Uh, and so as far as dual credit, uh, there's a program called Jumpstart that I was uh, informed about coming right out of uh, the pandemic. And so they suggested to my school, Sunrise Mountain High School, uh, would you be interested in hosting courses uh, in partnership with uh, different uh, community colleges across the state? And so I worked with an engineering professor over at CSN to offer electrical technology, being that I teach a lot of electronics, uh, wiring different systems in my own program. I spent two months in the summer preparing my curriculum, matching syllabi, matching examinations. And I want to say a week before school started, they told me, and this is coming from my own school, hey, sorry, we can't do this because we don't offer the math and English required courses for the Jumpstart dual credit program. Hmm. And I can tell you I was bummed out. I was bummed out because no one told me this, one. I think, two, I think about my career as a teacher as well. So much of what I've been trying to do in, in my profession is go look for opportunities. If they weren't in my building, I'd either make them there, find the people who wanted to partner me within the building, or I'd go outside my four walls and find other people across our state that want to build these sort of programs. And so I think that articulation between credits, working with teachers, there's a lot of nuts and bolts that come with building these programs, whether it be requirements of our teachers, what credentials they have, licensure, et cetera. I know that our state's doing a lot to make that easier. For myself to teach automation technology manufacturing, I was lucky enough to get grants to pay for training, to get my licenses, to prove to our state, hey, I can teach this stuff. There's a lot of work to be done. Uh, I, I look forward to seeing what we do in the future with these programs, but for me, it's uh, including teachers. That's so important, because we're that conduit. The students trust us. If we recommend a program, they'll, they'll give it that second, third look that they want when they're scrolling down through all their feeds that you know, they're now <laughs> used to. So. Okay, and to wrap up, we'll be bringing you one last quote from our panel on The Big Truth, a book written by CBS's Major Garrett and his co-author David Becker, 
who talked to CEO John Ralston about their book, which focuses on the lie that there has been about rampant voter fraud in the U.S. election. One of the frustrating things as someone who has written about this fairly often myself, uh, and, and, and this election denialism, uh, and, and, and all of what you talk about in, in this book, I've seen focus groups where people generally say, oh, let's move past that. Let's not talk about the past, let, let, let's move forward. And what I think you try to do in this book and why I think it's so important is you're saying, we can't move forward until we understand what occurred and the dangers that lurk in the future. And the dangers that are happening right now in the present. The 2020 general election was this great American triumph. Um, it came after the primaries, and we all recall during the primaries, we didn't know much about COVID. Election officials were scrambling. The Wisconsin primary was a mess. It happened in the beginning of April. They were doing the best they could. They didn't have any poll workers. Poll workers were quitting. They didn't have any sites to vote because places didn't know if they could have people come in safely. Um, we, didn't have a, uh, we didn't have a playbook for this at all. And that continued through some of the primaries in the summer. And then, and I was working very closely with election officials all over the country. They rolled up their sleeves and figured it out. And as Major alluded, you can't plan elections socially distant. They're not doing this over Zoom. They're meeting in their offices. That's the only way to do this. And um, somehow, when we look back on it, election officials managed the highest turnout by any measure in American history. 160 million voters, that's 20 million more votes than had ever been cast in any election. We had 67% turnout, that is by far the highest percentage turnout we've had since, in, in, in over a century, since universal suffrage. They didn't have adequate resources at all, Congress did not come through for them. Um, they gave them some money, but not enough. And they did this all in the global pandemic. And their work withstood more scrutiny than we've ever had on any election in history. More pre-election scrutiny, more litigation that occurred that clarified what the rules were. By the way, both sides won some of those. Most of those cases, seven out of eight, were won by uh, Republicans. And then, of course, most, more post-election litigation, over 60 cases. And there was never, we sit here today, 698 days from the November 2020 election. There still, to this day, has not been a shred of evidence presented to any court anywhere in the country of any kind of malfeasance or error that would have changed the outcome in any way or come even close. It's really remarkable, and it's the election officials that achieved that, and they have found themselves under constant threats, abuse, harassment in those 700 days since then. And if I could, John, just ever so briefly, this is kind of personal to me. Um, I grew up in San Diego, California. Uh, I was very fortunate that my mother was not only a great mother, but unusually for the 60s and 70s, she was an executive with AT&T. She was an engineer, not a college-educated engineer. She, earned, she learned her engineering skills on the job. So I had two parents who left the home every day carrying a briefcase, and I looked up to my mother as a kind of a trailblazer of her time. But my mother took every election day off to work the polls in our neighborhood. It was a house, three houses up the hill toward my elementary school, the precinct was a garage. She went in that garage and sat down and she checked voters in and she was a poll worker. She said that was her participation in the civic life of America and it was also, she told me, her way to keep track of the neighborhood. She was a busy person, she had this job, 
That's how she learned about births, deaths, marriages, all sorts of things going on in the neighborhood. It was how she connected herself, not only to our democratic larger experiment, but the neighborhood in which she worked. In 2020, my eldest daughter became a poll worker for the first time in honor of her grandmother. And so very deeply and personally to me, I wanted to tell this story on behalf of those Americans who did this work, who don't deserve the abuse they've gotten as a result of it, and who did it for all the same reasons. The participation in the continuance of civic life in America and this, I will say this, small m miracle of participatory democracy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Rubab Sahar, John Ralston, Sean Galanka, Ben Wynn, Major Garrett, and David Becker for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us with your favorite Trader Joe's snack or whatever else is on your mind at podcast at theenvyindy.com. Our original theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and June Pearson. And we have original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.